Resporting. This is podcast number five, the sporting program while no sports are being played. We'll be speaking with Eddie Williams shortly about AFL. We'll be speaking with Nathan Letts about cricket. Oh my God, Brent, it's going to be a big discussion on cricket this week. But let's lead with the NRL, which has also had a massive week. And Brent Ford joins me for all of these conversations. Plus, most importantly, at the end of the program, although we'll hear Letsies and Eds earlier than that, we're going to do our number one sporting moment. Oh, actually, I just can't believe this. You haven't made it. I can't. I can't. I've got good vision, but not quite. Because I've had the piece of paper with some (laughs) stats in front of me, and I've been trying to be really careful so that Brent can't see it by covering it over. I don't know why, because, you know, we're going to talk about it soon enough. Actually, I'll just go to the you've got to make sure see. that the secret stays in the vault. That's exactly right. But let's talk NRL first. And the big news this week, oh, there's so much big news, was Josh Adokar and Latrell Mitchell and Tyrone Roberts-Davis, who's been much quieter in the trio of people, have all been... What's the right word to use, Brent? Well, <sighs> they broke rules. They broke rules for a start. I mean, they've been disciplined by the NRL, but it seems, according to social media, that even if you do have a certain amount of discipline, it's never going to really satisfy the masses. There's a lot of people that have called for season-ending bans on the players involved in this, I guess you would say, sort of catch-up of people in northern New South Wales. And, I mean, it's a really weird situation. I know people will say that the the race card is being used here and perhaps they are using the card a bit to their advantage, but a lot of different cultural groups aren't being able to do... I know Muslim people who have lost grandparents and haven't been able to have a traditional Muslim funeral. I know other people who haven't been able to see their grandparents get buried and their Catholic or parents uh, who have been sick and, and died. So using this sort of cultural appropriation of being able to see people, it doesn't really stick with me when I've got people I know who mm. have lost people and haven't been able to share the grief. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had one where I've felt up and down and up and down more yeah. than this particular topic. And I'm still not certain where I stand because I felt for Latrell Mitchell when he was saying, my mates called me and they weren't yeah. in a good place, so I wanted to catch up, which I think we're all feeling. I heard that, but at the same time, they've got to know better than to take photos. Why? I understand that there would be people across the country and I'd make no mistakes that I reckon this is happening well and truly mm. across the yep. country. There, People are probably meeting in probably smaller groups than what happened on this occasion. But, I mean, it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because in any other situation, you'd think, well, this is fine. They're just people catching up. They're not hurting anybody. But under the current conditions, there's been very strict rules put in place for a reason. Yeah. And people are more or less view it as selfish to do what they're doing. But again, you go back to that whole aspect of a maid is struggling. But is that something that's been bored out of this whole situation of the ricochet and what's come back to these guys after the reaction to these photos? Yeah. The big thing for me also is just that with age, you see those things coming. Do you know what I mean? The worst thing for me is the fact that it was at a car's account, wasn't it? It wasn't Latrell Mitchell. So it was at a car who actually posted the pictures that he just didn't have the awareness to think this is not going to go down well. And this brings me to Nathan Cleary as well, because I have possibly more sympathy for Cleary in a bizarre way, because If what Cleary has said is true, and this one appears to have changed the story just this evening, Cleary was with his his sister and some friends of his sister, right? So technically in his situation, he was probably minding his own business. Now, I can imagine if your sister's like, hey, my brother's Nathan Cleary, come round, and they're like, oh, and chances are in today's day and age, the pictures are going to be taken, and he certainly... In my eyes, initially, he hadn't taken them himself voluntarily. So there's circumstances there which come with the territory of being someone like Nathan Cleary, but tonight's brought more to light. I mean, it's a strange one. I sort of felt that if it was the case where they had they ordered the Uber and they stayed for one drink, maybe I was a little bit sympathetic mm. for Nathan Cleary, but since two TikTok videos have appeared and 
for those who don't know, TikTok is a, a different social media platform based on videos of dancing and, and whatnot. And in this case, you see Nathan Cleary dancing. And in a couple of them, I mean, there is that sort of social distancing measures being put in place. But it's obvious that the original story that he sold, and we know that the NRL is investigating, so by the time that people are listening to this, it could mm. well be that Nathan Cleary is punished and is punished a little bit heavier than he was yesterday. It's a very strange situation, isn't it? Mm. Because everyone's trying to do the right thing. Most people are trying to do the right thing. I know some people might have the one or two slip-ups where they might go around to a friend's place. But on that occasion, there's probably one or two people involved. Mm. When you've got six, seven people involved, you just can't have that. That's exactly what the government's been in trying to say. And I think that on this occasion as well, it's not just going to be Nathan Cleary that's going to cop the punishment either. There's been talk that the girls are going to cop the $1,000 fines or whatever it is from the New South Wales government. So, yeah, to get a couple of photos with a footballer, it's probably the most costly ones they're going to have. Exactly right. I just feel really confused on it all because I suppose the worst thing for me is had this have had the implications of the state premiers going, well, if the rugby league players can't show that they can actually follow rules, then we're not going to let the season commence. And that would have been the worst scenario. And I think then that Josh Adokar, Latrell Mitchell and Tyrone Roberts-Davis plus Nathan Cleary would have been in real poo with their own teammates, etc. But again, this goes back to how can you have a sort of set of punishments down? People joke about the NRL carousel of punishment i mean we saw Mm. earlier this year the two bulldogs players who had their contracts ripped up despite not actually breaking any laws but Mm. on moral grounds and what's actually right in society they did break laws based on their job code where in this case all these people here have broken laws that are in place right now australian laws but again the punishment and moral values of society are a little bit different because I think in most cases, while people would be swinging and going at these current players and and what's happened over the past few days, I guarantee there would be a number of people on social media. I've seen people, some of my friends who have moved to the the coast and they're swimming in the ocean or sunbaking and they've come out and, and said that what these NRL players have done is wrong. Well, hello, look at what you're doing on social media and flaunting it. And their argument is that yeah, they're only one person, but sure, one person sees another person doing it and then you have a situation like Bondi where there's 500 people on the beach going swimming. So where do you draw the line is the problem that I have with it. I could not agree more with that, actually. That is bang on the money. Plus, the point is, once you upload it to social media, as soon as it goes massively viral, that says that something's not right. You know what I mean? Like if it was Yeah, nothing- because players, players are educated and... Perhaps someone like Ado Carr, who has wanted to move back to New South Wales, maybe this is what he saw, might get him a release from the Melbourne Storm. Maybe it's a cry for help. Who knows? I don't want to make excuses for these players because I know there's a lot of people who are on a lot less coin, who are without their jobs, doing it a lot harder than these players. But I think sometimes as a footballer, in the amount of money you earn and, and the like, your reality can be... A little bit warped so for these players this is their reality they don't really know anything else so sometimes mm. they can be a little bit out of touch with the the common person so we sort of say that they are set to a, a higher set of morals but maybe on this occasion it's just sort of they have lost touch with what's actually going on which is perhaps going to be even worse once they get into camp and they're all on top of each other which is a weird situation itself Let's move on to something else, though. Let's talk about the Warriors. The Warriors have to be in training by next Monday, and so there's been chat of them going to either Tamworth or Lennox Heads and setting up camp there, which is interesting development. <laughs> well, yeah, I think they were actually in Tamworth for a oh, period so they... of, of time when they were heading to the Gold Coast before they, they actually got there. One of our friends, uh, Phoebe, she was uh, trying to track them down because she's a reporter up there and actually found that the Warriors were based in Tamworth at that point in time. So, I mean, it might be something that they could adopt. They could be the Country Warriors or something. Barnaby might, would the love Northern it. New South Wales. Yeah, Barnaby's. <laughs> Barnaby's Warriors. Bears. He could claim it. Yeah, Barnaby's. <laughs> he'd claim them as his, 
as his own. And he's always talked about decentralisation and, and moving jobs to the bush. So, I mean, imagine playing a couple of rugby league games in Tamworth. It's not the worst idea. No, it's not. <laughs> and I think it's actually quite cool to have that non major town centre as a base for it because it really would. It would bring quite a lot of fun and excitement oh, and to the community. It's quite funny. Like I have cousins in Cowra at the moment and they're going, what virus? Like we don't know what's, oh, yeah. what's going on. And obviously there's not a whole lot of people that live in these sort of regional areas, but a lot of them are scratching their head going, what's all this fuss about? Well, we were in a capital city and we're down to what, three active cases? Two. Two active yeah. cases. So we're almost at that stage ourselves. Yeah. This is why coming back to where we started a couple of weeks ago, I'm so pleased that the sports have picked, this sport has picked a date because it looks like it can happen. This is the whole vision. And you think... Back to when they let everyone off that Ruby Princess. Had yeah. that not happened, perhaps we'd be in an even better position than we were. But I think someone was saying today that Brisbane is actually doing better than New Zealand. And New Zealand had the massive lockdown. So mm. at the start, it was probably a little bit, said it was a little bit ambitious that the target was going to work. But as you said at the time, that you've got to set a date and make it happen and I think in this case it looks like it will happen. Yeah, we'll hear from Eddie about how the AFL's going with their own one. So as it looks like at the moment, what I understood to be happening and everything keeps changing is that there's <laughs> going to be 20 games, 20 round season, two of which have already been played, so 18 games to go. And they're looking at playing State of Origin at the end of the season, which I think's great. Well, this is the most interesting aspect that I find. It probably almost mirrors... In a way, the NFL over in America, they do the Pro Bowl just before the Super Bowl. So there's sort of like a time off in between. I think it'll be really hard for a couple of players to make Origin if their team doesn't make finals because you have that sort of one-month gap in between. Mm. And we know traditionally there's a lot of players that play for Queensland that some of their teams haven't made finals for the last couple of years. So it might be a little bit difficult for those players to stake a case, but the coaches might get ambitious. I know Queensland hasn't won for a couple of years now, so they might get a little bit hungry, try something new. But it wouldn't hurt if there's a couple of new look teams. But I think any Origin series is better than no Origin series. And having it at the end of the season probably works better because you don't have that mid-season fatigue either. And if players are coming in fresh off a couple of weeks break and sort of training as hard as they can, I think we might actually have a better quality game than what we've had. I so agree with you. And every year when we have Origin, one of the megastars gets injured. Yeah. It's as reliable as clockwork. So if you do it at the end of the season, the implications are not as great and the players can actually go harder. Because I wonder, I wonder sometimes, I mean, State of Origin is such a big deal, but... Do they have that little thing in the back of their head, especially if they want to win a grand final, which if I had the choice between winning State of Origin and winning a grand final, I know which one I'd choose. I'd want to win the grand final. So is there some yeah. sense of, not preservation, but if you've got three Origin games, there is that subtle difference that will come from having it. Anyway, I can't yeah. wait to see. I think it'll be a more intense game too. Well, I think as well you've also got the opportunity that you can then make Origin perhaps something bigger. You can set it up as an event where Origin might happen on the Wednesday and then on the weekend you could have maybe New Zealand plays Tonga or something like that. You could mm. have the Pacific Islander nations play each other or, or work a way around it. Mm. Maybe Origin just stays standalone and does what it always an idea. has. This is all, you know, building up to me becoming an Becoming the CEO. Yeah, but what would be awesome is while they were doing the finals and once they get into the last sort of two weekends when you've only got those couple of games, why don't they build up Origin teams from the teams that have not made the top four? So you've got your top four that you protect, all the rest of the teams and you have a mini Origin of sorts or something like that from your leftover best of the best. Ooh. You should see Brent's face. I haven't won it's him over t- to this one. <laughs> it's a tough one. I just think Origin, Origin, you need the best of the best players. I think if you yeah. didn't have the best of the best, then perhaps it just doesn't work in that concept. It would be like City Country. Oh, and that's why it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and that's why it There's no Queenslanders in that game. That's probably why it doesn't exist. Yeah, you might be right on this. I have to rethink <laughs> my options. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment with more re-sporting. We'll catch up with Eddie Williams. who will let us know what's happening in AFL and we'll hear his number one sporting moment of all time. 
re-sporting. We've got Eddie Williams here to talk some AFL. Eddie, we've covered the NRL thoroughly already, but it's been a fairly active week in the AFL as well. They still feel like they're a little bit kind of confused as to where they're headed, but they've made some decisions. Yeah, well, it certainly seems like they're headed towards hubs. Jen, there's talk about the Gold Coast, Sydney, Victoria. They've all been mooted as possible locations for having hubs, whether it's one hub, two hubs or three hubs. But it's a bit controversial, these quarantine hubs. Under one of the possible models, players would have to spend 20, maybe even 21 weeks at the particular hub. And this has led to a lot of concerns about how long players can be expected to be away from their family. Could the family be allowed to come with them to the hub? We've had the Collingwood coach, Nathan Buckley, speaking to SEN this week. He's concerned about the mental impact that all this could have. And one of his players, Bill Sidebottom, his partner is expecting a baby later in the year, in mid-September, when the season would still be going. And of course, he'd want to be with her at the, at the birth of the child. And so I guess this is a worst case scenario, but the question the AFL still has to answer are around where are the hubs going to be? How many players come to the hub? Does every single player come or are some excluded? Are the families allowed to come? How much is it all going to cost? Because that seems to be a factor here is that if the AFL is going to host family members at these hubs as well, that increases the cost. And if there's a, a number of players who say, oh, I can't come to this hub because my partner's pregnant or we've just had a small child or whatever the case may be, is there a sort of critical mass where you say, actually, it's not going to work if these players don't want to come? That mm. seems to be the real problem. It's, it seems to be the only sticking point with the hub is the families i'm sort of in the corner that they should be able to bring their families to the hub but on the condition that they have to stay within a certain it's almost like the simpsons put a massive dome over it and no one's allowed to leave it and then you can be confident that it's going to work it sounds funny but if the players want their partners and their families to be in the hub then they have to do absolutely everything possible to protect that aspect of the hub otherwise it's just not going to work you risk the potential of contracting coronavirus yeah it's interesting sam groff the australian tennis player came out on social media work and he said well you know in other sports people are used to spending almost the whole year away from home away from their friends and family if they're on the tennis tour maybe they're a golfer even in cricket you see players spending massive chunks of the year away from home. The difference is, I guess, that if you're a tennis player, you can choose to skip a tournament here or there if you had to come home for family reasons or whatever the case may be, or if you can afford to, your family might travel with you. So I guess it's about having that option for the players, but you're right, if that is the case, there needs to be some pretty strict rules in place to make it work. I don't know if you guys were old enough to remember this or know this, but in the cricket in days gone by, they used to have a rule when they went over to England that family was not allowed to come because they were a distraction. Yeah. And if you imagine that you were going over and you're playing your one day as your test series and whatever, it was it ended up about three months worth of time commitment. And eventually they changed the rules because it was having a negative mental effect on the games to be that long away from their families. But that's just how it used to be done. Yeah, I guess the slight difference is the way a whole season works. But you're right, there were months at a time, and we see it still now, some tours, if there's a Nationals tour back-to-back with a World Cup, for example, tours that go for a long, long time into cricket. Professional sports people argue to spend time away from their families, perhaps in the AFL and NRL, not as much. But I think Nathan Buckley's right to point out some of the, the mental health concerns around potentially separating people from their loved ones for 21 weeks. We're talking a period of about five months. It's a long time. So what are the new WA training rules? Yeah, this is a bit controversial because in Western Australia, the government has changed its physical distancing rules and those changes would have allowed West Coast and Fremantle to start training in larger groups. But the AFL has stepped in and they're saying this is not allowed to happen. They don't want the WA clubs getting an advantage over clubs based in other states where the rules haven't changed, so they're not going to be allowed to train in larger groups. You're um, kidding and people me! People in Western Australia aren't happy. <laughs> Basil Zempelitz, the, the Western Australian broadcaster, he says, well, Victorian clubs have been all the time in terms of the amount of travel taken during the, in, during the season, in terms of the grand final being played at the MTG every year. And if there happens to be a, a change in the rules in WA, then such is life, and the other clubs couldn't be worried about it. But the AFL says, no. West Coast and Freo have to abide by the same rules as everyone else, even though 
training in a bigger group would not be illegal in Western Australia. It's a bit crazy, isn't it? Just on the, the social distancing, it's sort of come out this afternoon that there's been three Dockers players that were captured partying in isolation, sort of similar, I guess, in terms of the NRL boys earlier this week. Luke Ryan, Jason Carter and Michael Frederick were seen in a social media video breaching coronavirus restrictions after allegedly attending a house party. I think probably the thing about this that makes it the most interesting is I think it happened a day before the restrictions were actually lifted by Premier Mark McGowan. So if they had have waited 24 hours, then it could have been party time, but they look set that there could be a penalty for them. Yeah, something like seven people at this gathering, which, as you say, appears to have been in breach of the rules that were in place at the time, and it comes after a bit of controversy around Matt Fife going for a surf off the coast of Western Australia. So, yeah, a few of the Fremantle players have found themselves in a bit of strife. But now those things will be allowed, and training together in a bigger group than before would be allowed as well, but the AFL says no. So if these social distancing rules are now sort of changed a little bit what would stop the AFL from coming down on the Eagles and Fremantle players if say they were training in groups of 10 so or maybe the midfielders get together and the forwards get together in sort of covert groups under the AFL's nose yeah well I guess they keep it hidden I suppose I think the rule is something like you can only train in a pair essentially two or three people which is in keeping with the, the physical distancing rules that are in place at the moment in other states we might say that wound back as soon as in coming days or weeks or certainly in coming months but yeah you're right if they all rock up in that fast backyard away from the camera i guess a few handball drills will uh, will go under the radar of the afl imagine that social media accidental photo of like the 10 of them playing a backyard game and that being caused for a fine oh my yeah, what goodness what if they end up on TikTok? Yeah, they play like a goal-kicking game or something. and (laughs) I don't want to laugh at it because it's a serious thing and there's a lot of people that are doing the right thing. But in some cases, if you are exercising, I can see exemptions for why people would be able to get together. But, I mean, in cases of, of a party where it's not really something to do with your job, I could see why that sort of gets punished with fines and and the way because it's just that is the penalty for for anyone who gets caught in in that sort of situation i don't know whether there's jail time for anyone i don't think there is at at this stage under the the commonwealth system but it's just very strange times when you talk about elite athletes not being able to get together and and train in in a manner that would see a benefit of the the competition as well as not being able to and train, they also can't get together for the presentation night. So we've had this week the AFLW it's the night of nights where normally the players would all rock up to the, to the night's venue for the night's dinner and all the awards would be handed out. This time everyone was at home on a web stream in their pyjamas. But nice to have a happy story. Cotton on pyjamas? <laughs> That's right, wearing the sponsored product. Great story with the, the 19-year-old Carlton midfielder Matty Prasparkis winning the AFLW Best and Fairest this week. It's the first time a teenager has won that award. It's only her second season. Back-to-back club Best and Fairest at the Blues, All-Australian this year as well. Matty Prasparkis just had a, a great season. I reckon this will be the last time we see her picking up a, a big gong in the AFL Women's Competition. This is one of those big things that i am sort of been strong on as a sort of women's development coach here in the ACT. You sort of see these younger players who have had the benefit of being able to play football their entire lives and, of course, Prasparkas coming through the kick system and then being able to play AFL or Aussie rules all the way through her junior years and up until the point where she's 18, wins the Rising Star, and then in her second year is the best player in the competition according to the voting system. It's quite extraordinary to think that there's going to be players that are in two or three years will make Prasparkas look like she's probably a mediocre player in the competition, and that should be what the AFL is is looking at is if you keep these pathways and you make football a viable option for these girls, then you're actually going to improve the talent pool overall. Oh, absolutely. And as you say, players that are coming through the skills of our 
the game sense is better. That's what stands out about Maddie Christakis is that she looks like she's been playing the game for, for decades. She's got such a good sense of it, having grown up playing essentially her whole life rather than perhaps switching both at a later age or, or having to stop playing as a teenager when there weren't competitions available for girls to play in. So, yeah, certainly the, the juniors that are coming through the AFLW system now have had a great advantage over women that have come before. And there has been some concern that we could say funding cuts or maybe not the increase in investment in women's footy that we would like to see. And hopefully that's not the case because it's been growing so much that quality has been improving so much in only a small amount of time that hopefully the AFL sees that the value in spending you know, a very good chunk of its money uh, on the AFLW and on grassroots women and girls footy. Yeah, it's a great news story. So that's one great news story to wrap up your segment. But there's one more, Eddie Williams, and we can't wait. What is your number one sporting moment of all well, time? I'm, I'm taking this back to 2002. Uh, we're going overseas for the first time in my top five. We're off to the US. We're in Salt Lake City for the Winter Olympics, and we're at the rink. It's the men's short track, the thousand metre speed skating final. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Four people have just fallen over. Steve <laughs> Bradbury has won Australia's first Winter Olympic gold medal, and I will never get tired of watching that on the track. <laughs> Doesn't it just show that? You could train your entire life and not be as fast as everyone. But if you're there at the right moment, that's all that matters. That's what he actually said in the both the semi-final and the final. He just he knew he couldn't beat them on speed, but he knew the competitors. He knew them well enough to know that they were a likely risk to do what they did. So he he said, I, am I right on this, Eddie, that he deliberately said... Yeah, of- yeah, you're exactly right, um, Jen, because he, he skated pretty well in the early rounds. In fact, he'd won one of his earlier uh, heats and felt that he skated perhaps the best he'd ever skated at any of his four Olympics. But he'd had plenty of luck. He had an opponent disqualified in one of the rounds. A couple of others fell over in the semi-final. And right, he figured that the other skaters in the final were better than him. They were faster than him. They were all multiple um, world champions. And he figured, I'm going to keep this tactic of it back and we'll see what happens and you watch the race and there's a lap to go and Stephen Bradbury's nowhere it's like a cricketer that's been running out without even being in the frame and then on the final turn the other four they all crash out and he just glides home he's got this great look on his face it's been described as the most surprising and unexpected gold medal in history and that's exactly the look that you see on Stephen Bradbury's face he can't believe it no one else can believe it he's this bloke from Queensland which is not exactly where you'd expect men's Olympians to come from at his fourth Olympics survived some life-threatening injuries it's a dangerous sport speed skating I think something like 18 months before that gold medal he broke his neck Wow! and after he crossed the line he, he had a few minutes to get ready to be on the podium and he wasn't sure that he deserved to get up there and collect them. But he decided that he would get up there, that he would take the medal for that race, not for the 90 seconds or whatever it was on that day in 2002, but that he'd do it for the 12 years of work that had gone into it beforehand. There's, there's great footage. You can look it up on YouTube of him talking to Channel 9. It's a great narration he does, essentially, of, of his race. And last man standing it's called and that was the title of his autobiography i'm waiting for the movie like eddie the eagle i'm waiting for the steve bradbury movie and i mean it's now common australian parlance is doing the bradbury it is how many sports people enter day-to-day slang it's such an iconic moment and most people had never heard of it beforehand and we're not necessarily that familiar with what he's done since but brett is exactly right you train hard and you give yourself a chance you even made the final, but he clearly knows why. It's a very difficult sport to compete in, particularly as an Australian with virtually no in speed skating compared to his competitors from Korea and China and the US. But you give yourself a chance, and if you're in the right place at the right time, you can be a gold medalist. And he is a gold medalist. That's the most amazing thing, I think, about all of it is people go, oh, yeah, but he did that at event. Like, it doesn't matter. It's an Olympic event. Yep. He gave himself and put himself in the final and he won the gold medal. He was the fastest person when it mattered and that's all that counts in that sport. And I just think it is one of my favourites just purely for the fact that it's just so Australian. It's just yep. so Australian. We seem to find a way when there isn't a way. And it just seems, that to me just sums up Australian culture. We just always find a way, even when we're not expected to. 
And the facial expression. That's yes. so Australian as well. <laughs> Did that just happen? Oh, my God. I'm really, really glad that that one came up today because I don't know about you, Brent, but there's a, a whole lot of underdog in mine too. I don't know. I think mine is more a big dog. Oh. But an overdog. Yeah, an <laughs> overdog. But, I mean, in a way, mine is probably the typical Australian story. I mean, everyone will relate to it, I think, in one way or another. I'm half tipping that Letsy, who's not part of this conversation, may just go the Bradbury as well. Really? Um, uh, yeah, there's my tip for you because uh, Letsy loves an underdog too and you told me it's going to be the one that I'm not going to expect. So we'll see. Ed, I love it. I loved how you described it too. And uh, thank you so much for sharing re-sporting with us today over the phone and your number one sporting moment of all time. Thanks, Jen. Resporting. Uh, you've heard from Eddie Williams on the AFL. We've talked NRL extensively. And there's another sport that's had an absolute clangor of a week this week. And to talk cricket with us, Nathan Letts is on the phone. Nathan, Cricket Australia, I actually wrote it down as Cricket Australia is in a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was putting it mildly, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not too sure how... We've gotten to this point 100%, but I guess there are some things that we can go and try and discuss. There's a couple of things going on here. Yeah, just a couple. There's two ways of looking at this. It perhaps isn't a surprise if Cricket Australia is looking to the future and thinking that the rest of the seasons or the rest of this year is going to be an issue and that's where the money issues lie. But what they've come out and said is that they've basically got, what, four weeks? Was it a month or some some three months maybe of funding yeah. and then it was going to be kaput or effectively words to that. So I didn't see it remotely coming because as far as I was concerned, they'd had a wildly successful BBL. We'd had a great Christmas series. I couldn't imagine of all the sports in this off-season how Cricket Australia could possibly be in trouble. It's quite an interesting thing, isn't it? Given the Test Series was pretty successful, you wouldn't you say. BBL, probably crowd numbers down a little bit, so maybe that might have had a little bit of a hit. TV ratings are still relatively good for the BBL as well. And they've also got the billion-dollar deal in place with Channel 7 and Fox as well for the Test Series, One Dayers, and T20. So it's a very odd place to be. Like, Cricket Australia would run out of money if they didn't cut anyone, any staff or anything like that, they'd run out of money by August, which is bizarre. Like, how does that happen? Especially, yeah, given you're constantly making decent cash, the cash they've made in the last couple of years has been really, really solid. And they're not even playing cricket at the moment. This is usually the off-season. But they do have quite a few investments in different things. But obviously, the value due to COVID-19 has gone down drastically. But it is it is a weird one, isn't it? It's something's a really off. weird one. And, yeah, something's off. And can I ask, do you think it's got something to do with one of the stations that has money invested in showing it? So there was, am I right, there was some discussions that one of them wanted to get rid of the TV rights? And is could this be a factor? There was a little bit of talk going around about that. A story came out last month, actually, about the BBL. Apparently, Channel 7 wanted to offload the rights to the BBL to Channel 10, which would be a massive backflip given 7 and Fox paid so much for the rights to the BBL as well. But obviously, Channel 10, they're like, nope, we're not doing that. So, Channel 7 have still got the BBL rights. Channel 10 had the BBL, I think, initially, and they, they were the ones who sort of kick-started its success. But, yeah, I mean, I guess if they got the monkey off the back in that sort of sense of handing it over to Channel 7 and Foxtel who wanted to pay for it, then I'm still scratching my head at how how this conundrum at Cricket Australia has actually started. It's just, it's beyond me at how they can get themselves into this sort of mess. I think a bit of it is also safeguarding for the future. Like if the Indian series doesn't go ahead, if that doesn't go ahead, that's going to hit Cricket Australia real hard. Like hundreds of millions of dollars they lose with that. But a lot of it probably is safeguarding the future, especially with the World Cup. No one really knows what's going to happen there. And I guess we probably won't know for a few months yet, but... It's just odd. I had no conception. I would never have called the BBL a monkey on anyone's back. I thought it was making really good money for whichever station it was on and was getting, yes, maybe the numbers were down, but everyone had said the year before had too many games. So 
I thought the standards actually for last season's BBL, perhaps because I watched almost every single game, <laughs> I thought the standards were really high and I assumed that the numbers were right up there for audience and at least watching but albeit less games. The TV ratings have actually dropped. They are still pretty good, but they have actually dropped. Mm. And the issue is for Channel 7 is because they've got a fair bit of debt already, I guess they just kind of want to offload something that they can't necessarily afford, I guess. According to reports as well, like none of this, Channel 7 haven't come out and confirmed any of this. So that they, we're just going off speculation here. But would be crazy if Channel 10 did actually get the rights to it again. After, yeah. yeah. Or SBS or something like that. Imagine BBL on SBS, Brent. Wouldn't that be the weirdest thing? <laughs> I'd support it. Yeah, well, I would watch Late it on... Late night BBL. Yeah, and then it's highlights. Just, it's just like slogging and <laughs> the best of cricket for cricket lovers. I'd love that. SBS <laughs> would, would be quite a, a good fit. So Justin Langer, I was hearing the other day, has been cut down to like two days a week or something like that with the current situation. And then there's the talk of because everything's trying to shrink, what players in the Australian team would get cut and what would stay in. And this is a really interesting dynamic too because they normally have this massive squad and if they shrink the squad down to just what they need, who goes? It's looking like they're going to name the full Australian squad of 20 like they have like last year and the huh. year before. So that's what's looking the case. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably already out. Yeah. And apparently players are learning about if they're on the list or not today. Go into the crystal ball because I was just reading something before and they were talking about sort of players who might be on the edge and one who they said that might miss out on a contract was uh, Usman Kawaja. Yeah, well, he's kind of fallen out of favour, hasn't he, a fair bit? With Test cricket, he obviously hasn't really had the best time with the bat as of late and... It really wouldn't surprise me if he if he did lose his contract. Chances are he will, but he'll still be playing state cricket and he can still be called up if he is going well on the Shield and in, into the India series. He can still definitely be called up, but as for now, chances are, yeah, I think he will get a bit of a cut. Mm, that'll be interesting. And some of the other ones that were in favour last year, so Peter Hanscom, for instance, is almost definitely oh, no he's way gone. he could have yeah. But then you've got people like Matthew Wade who two years ago, if you'd said Matthew Wade was going to make the Australian team, you would have gone, nah, there's no way Wade. And not as a wikikeeper either. I know, I know. So things change so quickly and I never Mm. would have imagined, I mean, I might still be wrong, Matthew Wade may not make it, but I kind of half think he's a real good chance. Yeah, he's a very good chance, I think, because he has been doing really quite well with the bat. Obviously, he's not keeping now, so we've got Tim Payne behind the stump. So he obviously doesn't have to worry about how he's keeping his necessarily as much. But he's going all right with the bat. I reckon he'll have to get in, I think. What I find interesting as well is Minus Livershane. He's going to get quite the pay rise, even though he's really only been in the team for like a year. So, And he's up to one of the best players in the world. Just got to take the chance. To, I know, but you've got to take the chance to prove yourself. Here's one for you. Here's a roughie, Ashton Agar. In or out? I don't know. See, he <laughs> just divides. He just div- He's one that really divides. It's a, a similar sort of player, Adam Zampa. I he's love sort Adam of Zampa. On, but he's apparently He'll be in. He's on the cusp, apparently. Oh, really? So you reckon? So he's, you say no, Ashton Agar? Yes, Adam Zampa. I think so, no, because a Adam Zampa does play a lot of ODIs. I guess Agar does as well, but I think the selectors have more faith in Zampa for whatever reason. Agar's been pretty good with T20 International, so at the start of the summer he took 15 wickets at 13.53, going at less than a run of ball. I mean, oh, so that's, that's pretty f- good form for a World Cup year. Here's a, another one that... Might I mean, it probably gets a new contract, but Joe Burns as the incumbent opener of the Test match side. Joe Burns, what do you reckon? Yes or no? Yeah, I think so. I think just, yeah. You are really sitting Tough on the fence one. with these ones. I'm loving it. All right, Glenn Maxwell. No, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> no, doesn't get I one. Wish. I really wish. Me too. But, but really he's only household. T20 international. He hit 62 off 28. He doesn't get it. BBL was amazing. Mm. What about... That's J- true, that's true. And how much will 
the T20 World Cup have on who's selected in, in these contracts. That's true. Think? Well, it might weigh heavily, and that's why I'm thinking this guy might possibly <laughs> find his way somehow into it. James Pattinson. Probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> it's all right. You can say that they're not going to get a contract. Might it's it's so hard. Cause it's, it's hard to know what the selectors are what they're basing this sort of on with, with the T20s and a big test series this summer. It's There's hard to know what they're going to base well, I've, I've, from, I've heard There is a couple. I really like Nathan Coulton Isle and I'm almost he's certain... He's in the firing no, line. He, he's, yeah, he's in the firing line. No, he's out. He's out. Oh, we've got a definite bit yeah. on Nathan Coulton. <laughs> so, I mean, you've done pretty well. So I'm reading this article <laughs> and in the firing line they've got Coulton Isle and Hanscom. And another player who I was surprised got a contract last year was Marcus Harris. But, well, I mean, he was in the test team a fair bit before the contract. Can't came remember up anything last year, about him. So he was a big yo-yo. <laughs> yeah. He's in and out. No. Probably not. So his final three tests. This will be why Jen didn't remember him. He scored fifty-eight runs and an average of nine point six six. What a legend! That's yeah. David Warner Ash's figures right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's yeah. One. Should we bring back Peter Siddle for you, Let's see. Well, he's retired for international cricket, but why not? <laughs> Bring him back. Get him back. Him and his what about the Greek Adonis? The, everyone forgets about him, but Marcus Stoinis. It would be good. But he is a rig. Or is, Look, he, be is he in the firing line? Be honest. Say no. He's not going to make no. it. He's not. T20 uh, well, World Cup? I said T20 we'd all aesthetically like to watch him, but um, I think it's only me, really, who'd aesthetically <laughs> like to watch him. T20 World Cup, though. You've already said that Maxi's not really an option, and you yeah. know I know Maxi wasn't great. great what if all the firing line players played the actual team? So you had like Usman Kawaja. Why did they Kultanal. get rid of the Australia A versus? Because that's because Australia A kept beating the Australian team. That's why they got rid of it. Oh, maybe. Do you remember that? Did they? Yes. Oh, my God. Let's see. Let's see. tell you this, too. So they used to, in the Tri-Series, they'd have Australia and then they'd have an Australia A team. What? And they'd, yeah, I know. And in so the Tri-Series? Yes. And so the other team's just like... Oh, maybe it was a four-way... Four yeah, but this was, again, me growing up. But because Australia A kept beating Australia, they stopped it because it wasn't a good look. But wasn't this when the Australia A team had, like, all the young guns? Yeah, usually and that's And then it was thing. like, oh, they became the world beaters and never lost a game of cricket in, like, 100 years. And, yeah. Well, not quite, maybe Maybe that was the issue. Matches. But I just think that there's... When you have the Australia A team, because they're so much more vested in trying to play for their space, they often have that additional kind of fearlessness that the Australia team doesn't have. So, anyway, they nip that in the bud, but, my God, I wish they'd bring it back. What if they had a, a concept where you could have, like, a the 30s cricket team? So, like, all players in their 30s represent the country and then all players in their 20s represent the country. Yeah. And so all the 20-year-olds from 20 to... 29 play against India's 20 to 29 and then the 30 year olds can play each other so MS Dhoni can play and they can throw in you know Sean Marsh can play against India. I watched the over India. 40s god that'd be brilliant. <laughs> 40s Gil- is Gilchrist in that? He's still in the 40s yeah. yeah yeah and there's lots of the ones. Lehman is or is he 50 No now? Lehman would have to be in his 50s no. now. Um, remember he's got like a grown-up kid who's playing cricket now. Booney, no, he's gone. <laughs> <laughs> We're digressing, let's see. Let's get back onto the topic at hand and let's talk about your number one Ooh. sporting moment of all time. What you don't realise is that we've heard Ed's and I made a quiet yeah. bet with Brent that Ed's number one could well be your oh. number one. So I'm extremely keen to see whether or not I'm going to win a quiet little bet here. What's the bet for? How much? We don't bet probably. for money. We bet for food. Oh. It's probably for food. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, it's probably a burger on the line somewhere. <laughs> good bet to win. Really good bet to win. So, I'd love Brent and I'm I'm literally just... holding our breath. <laughs> March 2015. No, oh. it's not the same one. <laughs> <laughs> Only 13 years off. Okay. He went for the Steve Bradbury moment, just so you know. Fair enough. But um, <laughs> it's not necessarily the one I would have picked. Given but it's definitely not the down, one. But it was pretty cool. Yeah. So March 2015, did you say? Yeah, March 2015, Cricket World Cup. And, of course, this all followed the uh, tragic death of Philip Hughes in uh, November 2014. Really emotional. It's probably one of those moments, I guess, for me, that you remember exactly where you were when you learnt 
that that had happened. I remember where I was, I was in Brisbane and I just brought a new site up and I read it on the computer. I was like, what? Is this actually real? Like, did this actually happen? And yeah, unfortunately it did. A lot of really lovely things happened. Like, the, you probably remember the put your bats out, seeing how did. everyone was yeah. putting their bats out. Clark's eulogy was really good as, as well. And obviously India series, really, really touching as well. But the World Cup was where I think Australia really, I don't want to say shined. I can't think of the word. But, yeah, the World Cup was probably my favourite sporting moment because obviously you had Michael Clark. He wore his black armband with PH on it for Philip Hughes. And the game itself, the final itself, wasn't actually that good of a game because we kind of beat them quite well thanks to our really, really good bowling performance and a Smith and Clark partnership that was solid. But it was kind of after the win that really did it for me. Just Australia holding up the World Cup and just kind of dedicating it to Phil Hughes because it was a really emotional four or five months since his death and then it just sort of culminated in that win, I guess. It was just amazing to see and on home soil as well. It was really, really great i guess to win. <laughs> uh, well it, it mm. it's hard to put into context the meaning to certain of those players cuz i go back to the day when it happened i was working at 2gb at the time and i remember where i was at my desk when ray hadley said on air that philip hughes had died and i had that moment of sitting here thinking to myself i'm going to remember this moment always you can't watch that footage anymore, which is the right thing. But mm. you have to bear in mind that David Warner, who went through, I wonder sometimes how much the sandpaper thing and whatever, how much of his psyche was affected because it was Warner who was sitting with him on the car that drove Philip Hughes out after the incident. It was Wade who was behind the stumps. It was the first person to get to Philip Hughes when it happened. Clark was one of his best friends and... The other thing that I didn't realise at the time is that Philip Hughes had lived with Justin Langer for a period of time because of having to commute and so on. And Langer saw him as a second son. In fact, I think Langer doesn't have sons. I think he might have daughters. But he was that attached to him that the impact on Justin Langer was so profound as well. So they're four key players in our current test team who've been dramatically affected by that moment. Not Clark, obviously. Clark's retired now, but... I can still see David Warner, whom I have difficulty with sometimes over his actions, but I see his face in that moment and I wonder the ongoing impact of it. So that mm. whole sequence of events to me means so much because it changed cricket forever, that moment with Philip Hughes. Absolutely, it did. Ugh. Yeah, you, you put it much better than I did, I think. But it was um... Well, it's a hard thing to talk about because it was great that we won, but the win came with such an emotional baggage to it. So it's yeah. hard to be happy when at the same time there was so many other contexts to it. And the mm. beautiful thing was how the other teams responded too, the respect and that they put value on it. Many of them had known him because he played over in England. There was a lot more to it than just that moment in time. As you say, it changed cricket right around the globe, for example, as well. Helmets are being made differently because of the incident with better guarding on the neck as well. So it's, it's changed everyone's outlook on the game and also probably to a degree how they play the game. It'd be interesting being Sean Abbott and like... Oh, Abbott, of course, When he yes. bowls a bouncer, for example. Like what's sort of going through his head when he's doing that? Is he less reluctant now to bowl a bouncer than he used to be, for example, due to what happened? There was a game, and I'm trying to remember if it was a BBL match where someone else got hit by an Abbott bouncer and Abbott looked like he was physically going to be sick. Yeah. And, and I also wonder the impact it's had on Abbott's career because of that fear over something that was in many ways beyond his control. Yeah, well... I guess we won't necessarily know for sure unless, of course, he comes out and says something. Here's another one for you, Brent, that is separate to that. I went and saw a, a Canberra Raiders game against the Melbourne Storm because my son is also a Storm supporter like you, Letsy, and I saw the game where Billy Slater was knocked out cold. 
Oh, yeah. Mm. And when Slater was lying on the ground, we could see him and Slater wasn't moving and I can't remember who the raider was who gave him the tackle, but I had that moment in my head of, oh, my God, am I witnessing a Philip Hughes moment with my son? You yeah. change your yeah. mindset. It's a reality that you can't imagine prior to. It's amazing if that had it happened in 2010 or sometime around there. Like you, As you say, you think about it completely different. I think it's also interesting that a lot of people's attitudes towards concussion and things like that and brain injuries have changed, not only because of Philip Hughes, but they've just changed right around the world, like mm. in all sport, which is definitely a good thing because a lot of people post playing sport were being affected by all the concussions they'd gotten. In many ways, I'm glad you brought this up because while it is a your number one sporting moment isn't always jubilation, but it can be that culmination of a very emotional period and experience. And there's yeah. lots of players over history whose win has been off the back of great loss or trauma and they're equally as important. And oh, I've actually just got goosebumps again thinking about it because the Philip Hughes thing affected me very deeply, especially as I'm now breeding a fast bowler myself. Yeah. There's so many complex emotions around it. And as, mm. as I've already said, I just wonder what baggage Dave Warner carries. Yeah. I'm glad that that was your number one. I can guarantee mine's a little bit lighter than that one. <laughs> but, okay, cool. <laughs> but it's an important one to discuss too and that's what sport's supposed to do, make us feel great and make us think and challenge us as well. And let's see, thank you for sharing with us and we'll catch up with what Cricket Australia's new pickle is next week. Oh, I'm sure there'll be a number of things happening. <laughs> well, it's just you and me, kid. Resporting, segment four, podcast five, and that brings us to Brent's and my best ever sporting moment with a real veil after having Letsy on just beforehand. But I think mine's a good one to tie into that because of the underdog tones. Okay, so my number one sporting moment of all time, Brent, takes us to 1996 when you were... How old were you in 1996, Brent? It depends what part of the year, but if it was before December, two and a bit. So you're going to remember this one clearly. <laughs> I might. I might have watched a replay. I hope you have. So let me set the scene for you. I was in Macquarie Centre in Sydney. Yep. And the Olympics were on, Atlanta Olympics. And... The final of a certain event came onto the screen. They were playing it. They would never normally play a moment like this, so you could tell it was a fairly momentous thing to have it up on a screen at the shopping centre. I decided I would go and stand and watch it for personal reasons, and I ended up standing for the entirety of the event. And by the time I'd finished, I was the first person there. By the time I'd finished, there would have been two or 300 people crowded Ooh. around watching the screen. And that's a part of why the moment meant so much to me because at the end of it, everybody went, yeah, and we all kind of hugged and this was a shopping centre in I Sydney. I still can't think what it is. You'll know as soon as I go back in time because in the semi-finals of the 1,500 metres in the pool, Kieran Perkins was oh. not well. And he, in fact, he was so not well, he considered not racing in the semifinals. He was the world record holder at this point in time. And he swam, but he swam a really poor. I think they only had, it's not really a semifinal because they don't have that many people competing in the 1500. But he qualified by 0.24 of a second. For the 1500, this is a... It's a long race. I mean, there's one and a half kilometres swimming. So he only just qualified and he was the slowest in lane eight. And you'll know that it's very unusual to win a race from lane eight. Next to no one does it. Never. So we get to the final and you have in lane four, you have Daniel Kowalski, who was the hot favourite, Australian as well. Yeah. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride, but hot favourite for this. And Kieran was basically just making up the numbers. And I remember when I watched this particular event, I was sitting there and in my heart of hearts, I was going, come on, Kieran, give at least a good showing. About halfway through the race, Kieran was like a full lap of the pool in front, right? <laughs> Not a body length, yeah. was that far in front. And it was kind of like, you know, again, in the horse racing or all those in the marathon, you have those people who start out in front and they just fade. And that's what I thought was also going to happen. Yeah. 
But you got closer and closer to the end and this is where more and more people were coming to join and just the gap was not closing. It became clear that Kieran Perkins, who probably, I think he said he must have known he was in front. He must have known. But when you're a lap in front and you're in the pool, you really don't know where you are in relation to oh, anyone be, else. It would be extremely scary. He could either have thought that he was really far behind or really far ahead. Yeah, so he was swimming basically his own race with no idea of what was going on in the rest of the pool. And so it gets down to the end. He finishes the race. He touches the wall. He realises he's coming under 15 minutes, which was, again, a fair effort considering that he really wasn't all that well. And he... His wife is in the crowd and she's just overwhelmed by what has happened. And then we're watching the race between... There was a great British guy and Kowalski. And the great British guy was in front and Kowalski just pips him on the wall to get silver. Unfortunately, silver again, but not gold. And there must have been something because when they put up the results, Daniel's face was crestfallen. Like it's awful to say because he must have in some bizarre way thought he'd won. Well, yeah, because he wouldn't have seen Kieran. And because it's in lane eight, if you've ever been in a swimming pool, it's very hard to see someone from 20 metres or would be about 15 metres across in the lanes. So he would have had that moment where he touched and touched before the other guy where he thought, I've won this. And then he has this person from lane eight who's come in. But the elation of Perkins, and I remember how he was breathing when he gets out of the pool because he's got that sort of red sheen and it was almost like his breathing was all out of whack and he jumps up and goes and gives his wife a hug in the crowd and his swimmers and so on. But that moment standalone where he came from nowhere in a race he was not expected to place win lane eight is that for me ultimate sporting moment classic underdog and brought everybody in this shopping center to hoarding round to watch him win that race oh, so oh that's my greatest sporting moment not my favorite sport not my favorite sports person but it's the moment wow kieran perkins instantly i think of 1500 meters and i think of grant Hackett Mm. in Athens, I think it was when he had, I think it was the collapsed lung or or something like that. But often because I was too young to remember, I didn't get to appreciate Kieran Perkins, but I'll probably go home tonight and I'll watch it and I'll get an appreciation for it. But I get get the chills from hearing you explain it and having it excite other people as well. It sort of gets me excited i had a tough time with my five like a really tough time because i love so many different sports there was a lot of different moments throughout time that didn't make the cut and i think of winks with its fourth cox plate didn't make it if you haven't joined us beforehand we we have covered in your top five horse racing basketball afl and nrl is that right yeah yep okay basically yeah so and then i think of Josh Papali's try to send the Raiders into their first oh. preliminary final in 25 years. Didn't make the cut. Didn't well. make the cut. And I go Watford, who had suffered so much heartbreak for so long in the English Championship. They get two saves in the final minute of a do-or-die sort of semi-final elimination. They go the length of the field and score a goal and... That didn't make it either. They celebrated in the crowd. There was a pitch invasion. That didn't make it either. So I think of all these different moments of sport that I've watched for so long, Kobe's 60 points in his final game didn't make the cut. So for me, it's really hard that this is number one. But for me, this is such a defining moment in my childhood. I was only, I think at the time, I was only five and a a bit years old. But I'd take us to June 6, 1999, the SCG, Collingwood's playing the Sydney Swans. And of course, I think this is one of the most, I think in Swans history, if you go down and look at history of what they've been able to achieve, I think Tony Lockett's 1300th goal that he kicked to go past Gordon Coventry, the absolute peak. I think of the names in the chain of who actually set up the goal. So Adam Goods, a young Adam Goods is sort of part of the chain. He passes it along. It ends up in the hands of Stuart Maxfield, who then sends it down the line. It gets kicked out on the full. And Paul Kelly, one of the most iconic players in Sydney Swans history, 
has the honour of hitting a pass, spears Tony Lockett on the chest, right on the quarter time siren, and I think this entire hush goes around the SCG. And it's just so unlikely that this boy from country Victoria, this sort of man mountain, just sort of took over the competition. And I don't think there'll ever be a player like Tony Lockett ever again. Just someone who was so strong and so powerful, but at the same time was overweight was just we never saw a fully fit Tony Lockett but we got what he was and he was just an Aussie character he was just your typical eat your pies there's a story from when he was playing at St Kilda before they were training he was munching on pies and downing beers before they were even training this is a boy out of the country who had come to the city and that's why he ended up at the Swans because he just couldn't deal with the city lights but he's one of the the greatest players of all time and he goes back and everyone everyone's held their breath and for a period of time from I think I was about four years old when I picked up a football and I was just like I was a chubby kid and I was I'd really liked Tony Lockett just for the aspect that I could see myself as this sort of player and as time's gone on there's been different players who have sort of been overweight that have played in the league and he's sort of gone yep that is they've made it possible Tony Lockett goes back and he slots this goal and I think the most perfect aspect about all of this it was against Collingwood a lot of people hate Collingwood but I think it was so fitting that a Collingwood player had held this record since 1937 Gordon Coventry had kicked 1,299 goals Tony Lockett goes past him against Collingwood on a day where he kicks nine. This is Mm. his third goal for the day. And in just a perfect moment, everyone just jumps onto the field. Didn't matter who you were. They were just, everyone was going onto the field. And I sort of think back to 2008 when Buddy kicked his 100th goal. I think he was the second player or third player after Matthew Lloyd and Fraser Garrick to do it since Tony Lockett was the last player to do it. And for me, it was just, it was sort of like a dream as a kid to think that someone had kicked 1,300 goals. I asked Dad, I was like, is that more than a million? Is that, that's so many goals. I couldn't believe it. But it was just the fact, for me, it was iconic to sort of see one of your heroes as someone so little actually achieve something. And them not being your typical sports person either. They weren't your typical build of say like a Robert Harvey who could run all day or Wayne Carey who was super fit at the time he was just this man mountain of a player and he was almost like it's almost superhuman in a way it was just for me it just stands out so much. Buddy reminds me of him so much sometimes. Yeah and I think he's probably one of the last players I think that will kick a thousand goals in the competition I know three years ago Tony Locker was asked if he thought anyone could kick 1,360 goals, which is what he finished up on. And he said Lance Franklin. But Lance has probably got to play another. I think Corona may have possibly hindered his chances of doing it or it may have helped him because he hasn't had to really train. He let the body sort of rest and then he can sort of come back to full fitness. But he's still got to kick. And this is crazy. He's still got to kick another... 300 400 goals but to do that in modern football is such a a massive achievement because we don't see the the sort of goals that Tony Lockett and Jason Dunstall and the like were kicking in the 80s and 90s. I love that it wasn't uh, winning a grand final moment it was just simply a moment in time well I mean there's stands alone yeah and I mean there's so many and you would have had the same dilemma Mm. is that you could pick so many different things like Across my childhood, watching Origin and seeing something like Gordon Tallis's tackle on Hodgson or Darren Lockyer scooping that errant pass and running it in under the post in Origin, and you just yep. think, wow, those moments. Or Scott Sattler's tackle in the grand final where the Panthers beat the Roosters. You just think that. Newcastle winning the grand final is one for yeah. me too. That was a incredible. Was that Super League time? Yeah, yeah, so they won the ARL. And and that's one of the greatest grand finals I've ever seen. and so there's all these different moments that won't make it. But I think Mm. that's the one thing, and there's one thing about this series, is that sport is subjective. So people aren't going to agree with what we say, and that's Mm. okay because everyone, 
everyone's entitled to their own opinion in sport and none of our five we haven't out of all of us none of our moments have been the same no isn't that fascinating too because the Kim and Perkins moment for me I'd sorted out first yeah and worked backwards yeah so I worked down and I thought having two swans moments people could argue that they aren't even the greatest swans moments you go back to 2012 nick malcheski kicks a snap over his shoulder or leo barry's mark in the 2005 grand final adam goods winning multiple brownlow medals for the club as an indigenous footballer there's a thread to all four of our number one moments in a certain way in terms of that that's the moment that has spurred us on. Kim and Perkins did. Like, I thought if someone yeah. can win from lane eight, then anyone can do anything. And for yeah. you, if someone can break that record and score a million goals, as you saw it to your dad at the time, like yeah. something that can never be... Well, that's it. And then, you know, the Aussie team winning out of the tragedy of Philip Pugh's yeah. death. And then, of course, Stephen Bradbury. Against who, the no- massive odds, the unexpected underdog. They've all got a theme to a them. A theme to them, which is that's heartwarming in mm. a way because no one yeah it's great that for me is what sport is at the end of the day it's the unexpected and for me it is the best drama and most of it is written on the day you can't write a better script mm, i totally agree you've been listening to resporting god what a fantastic moment in time to celebrate all of these god i'd love to know your favorite sporting moments too we'll put that question out yeah i'd be interested to hear what others are if they're prepared to share them and thank you for joining us for this really long episode that's covered all manner of bases <laughs>